Today's episode of Undesigned comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host Costa Lucas and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these challenges. So listen in and see where you fit in as we undesign today's topic of online dating. In the US, it's estimated that at least 30% of the population has used dating apps and in Australia this number is slightly higher at 35%. Yet despite this large number of people using dating apps, there still seems to be a stigma around online dating. On one hand, some people talk about online dating as if it's an especially superficial way of meeting someone. You know that all it takes for you is to swipe right every time you like the look of someone. On the other hand are the horror stories of catfishing, lonely heart scammers, and sexual harassment that make it sound like the digital wild, wild west. But when you boil it down, are those the things we're really scared of, or is there something more human at play here? Helping us untangle this wicked problem in this special two-part episode is our guest, Dr. Lauren Rosemorn. Lauren is a senior lecturer and associate professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. She currently teaches in the areas of political science and gender studies and writes, comments and speaks on a wide variety of topics, including gender, sexuality, politics, public policy, social media, pop culture and technology. And her works comprise of some awesome titles like Sex in Public, Cheating on the Sisterhood, and Part-Time Perverts. In our irreverent but insightful chat, Lauren sets the scene by looking at the state of online dating nowadays and why the stigma still exists. We then explore whether this stigma comes down to the very real safety concerns that exist online, or is it something else? Well, if my chat with Lauren is anything to go by, it might actually have more to do with a technophobia that seems to be a recurring theme throughout human history when faced with the advent of new technology. If you have ever been unsure about the online dating world, then this chat is a great opportunity for you to reflect on your own experiences and compare them to the big picture before you decide for yourself. Well, Lauren, again, thank you so much for joining us today and taking some time out of your busy schedule to unpack this conversation. We called it Undesigning Online Dating, but, you know, based on reading some of your work, you know, it's really about undesigning the concept of romance, at least in my mind. And, you know, we what we wanted to sort of, why we wanted to reach out to you is because you had quite a prolific set of work on the, on the, on the in the field of online dating pre-pandemic. And I think you'd be a great person to learn from in terms of, you know, what the lay of the land is and what has changed, or if anything, as a result of the pandemic. So I just figured as a starting point, just to give an easy entry point for the listeners in there, like, how would you describe the current state of play with attitudes toward online dating at the moment? Okay. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I think that we're now at a point in our experiences with online dating where there's a norm about it, assuming that you're about under 50. I think if you're over 50, and I, I, again, that's not a, a, an age I can kind of scientifically mark. I'm, I'm using that largely, you know, empirical observations from people around me, but that seems to be the cutoff where for people who are older, there's still a perception that it's still a little bit weird. And because mm. they've grown up in, they're not digital natives at that age. They're not people who grew up with the internet, certainly didn't grow up with social media. Therefore, there's still a foreignness about it. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not using the technology. It's yeah. just that it doesn't have the same norm that it does for younger people. And I think there's a kind of, I guess, what's the opposite of sliding scale, but <laughs> the young, <laughs> the younger you are, the more normal this is as well. Yeah, and, interesting. And research seems to suggest that now it's the main way people, regardless of age, meet their partner. So okay. how we define partner, that's a little bit more complicated because, you know, um, uh, is a partner someone you sleep with three times, you know, but nonetheless, it's now the place. Whereas, you know, even a decade ago, that was not the case work, school, church were still your big ones. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. And do you think, like, if we accept that real, like that, you know, that that reality that yeah, this is kind of the the norm when it comes to dating. Do you still feel that there is still a stigma towards it? Generally, I mean, you alluded to it with the sort of the generational kind of a different generational attachment, but would you say it's still a stigmatized or kind of just, I don't know how to describe it if stigma is the right word, but do you think people still have some very specific ideas of what that involves and what values attached to meeting someone online? Look, if you look at our popular culture, and this is something I do a lot of research on in terms of kind of how does the media give us a informal education about certain topics. If you look at our popular culture, most movies and television shows aren't about people meeting for love or sex purposes online. Right mm. now, I think mm. that idea influences whether, and I agree with you. I'm not sure stigma is is the pinpoint accurate word for this, but there's still a bit of a perception that meeting your partner online is a little less than. Right now, that less than could be less romantic. It could be less sweet or less fatalistic or serendipitous, whatever word you want. <laughs> but that yep. there is a perception that there's something romantic about meeting in a real life setting, you know, paths crossing, the planets aligning. There's a cultural idea about what a romantic meeting is. That tends not to be you at two o'clock in the morning swiping through photos. So <laughs> there is a bit of a an idea there that our cultural ideas of what idealized love looks like isn't that. And I think even though we're doing it and doing it in high numbers and it's now the normal way you meet a partner, that, and look, I think you could uh, liken this to food. If you think about the kind of foods most of us eat, we're not eating gourmet on the regular. And yet that gourmet is the idealized in our culture. We're not romanticizing, you know, a slice of pizza. We're not romanticizing spaghetti bolognese. And I think there's an element there of, yeah, okay, this is how we meet now, but it's not the gold standard. And if you can get the gold standard, that's somehow more beautiful. Mm. Right. So, oh, wow. I actually didn't think of it like that, where it becomes kind of like you said before, like a sliding scale of like, here's the most optimum way to meet someone. Here's the least optimum way. Online dating kind of sits between those two points of the spectrum at different places for different people, I guess. So the idea that online dating is kind of like, oh, out of necessity or, you know, maybe Actually, this is something I'd love or to hear Or at least more out of default, you know, yeah, in a sense okay. that there are a lot of reasons why people use it. And I think that they're obvious reasons in terms of the appeals, but that the idea of you, you know, not actually actively looking and yet finding love, there's this element there of a romantic idea that, you know, love will somehow find me rather than me having to insert technology and the market into right. this into this search, I guess you could call it. Yeah, right. So it's almost like technology provides this at once, like a it, it bridges the gap and it also kind of creates another one because it's something you use to to meet your whatever emotional or personal need you might have, right? So oh, absolutely. Perhaps, and that's yeah. the history of our relationship as humans with technology. I mean, if you think of social media particularly, it's underscored by this idea that it has helped us communicate much, much, much more easily. Now, whether that's a good thing to be able to stay in touch with people you went to primary school with, that's open for debate. But of course. <laughs> it's certainly a tool for communication and, and connectivity. But there is and there always has been this perception of technology being somehow dehumanising. Mm. And if you think of the history of, of, of sci-fi and horror films, there's often an element that what happens when humans get too close to technology leads to something negative, that there is something that we become less human when our relationship with technology is too strong. And that's, wow. you know, I think you could sort of feed that into other kinds of, you know, when uh, think about how we've demon not so much now, but historically demonized, for example, nerds in popular culture, there's this perception that they're robotic, you know, mm. this idea that they speak like robots or they act like robots. And there's this idea that, you know, we seem to know culturally what it means to be human and therefore something too close in affinity with machines is dehumanizing, which is obviously incredibly ridiculous given that we're all online for all of our waking hours now, but That's there's right. that still that legacy idea that we don't want to become too much like machine. And look, I saw this in terms of when I wrote a book on masturbation a few years ago and was mm. looking at uh, how 
uh, sex toys, for example, were presented in popular culture, it's the same thing. There's this idea that it's a kind of machine and, and that you're somehow now having sex with a machine as opposed to, you know, some sort of uh, self-love. And that, again, I think is part of this, that there's a sort of technophobia that rears its mm. head at weird times. That's actually, you know, that just sparked a thought in that, do you think some of our mistrust or these our apprehension towards these things and this technophobia, like if you're using sex toys as an example, right? If I if I had to scan my brain and think about movies I've seen where that's factored in as a plot point, mm. there's almost this judgment about people who use it and the partners of people who use it. So it's like, is it like a, a do you think some of that technophobia is that it's filling a gap that humans feel like they would they should be able to fulfill. And oh, so, abso- yeah, absol- yeah, absolutely. But there's also the bigger thing of the idea that if you are masturbating in any sense, in you know, using your fingers or using a toy, that there is an idea that this is a substandard substitute. You know, you're, you're doing this because you're, you're basically unfuckable, that, that if you were desirable in this culture, you'd get a partner. You'd get a yeah. partner rather than having to resort to this. Also, I think you make a point there about what happens to the partner of the person who's, you know, let's say using a sex toy. And I, I in in my book on masturbation, I talk about that how, you know, in these scenes of masturbation, it's often a way to emasculate a partner. And mm-hmm. that feeds into research that actually talks about, you know, men feeling a little bit emasculated if his partner is also, let's say, it's a female partner and using a vibrator during sex. There's an element there of I should be able to take care of all of your needs. What's this? for and again that idea of somehow being jealous of an inanimate's not the right word because clearly it's animated it's animated (laughs) (laughs) a a a a non-human entity in the bed yeah gosh that's actually to be honest that's actually really blown my mind thinking of it like that i because i mean i draw parallels from my own area of research which like my my research background is actually in extremism and polarization. Like mm-hmm. I've been in that space for quite some time. And the sort of the interplay that technology has on people's decisions to form relationships, you know, in this context, we're talking about dating apps. In my context, we're talking about using social media to join extremist groups or to be mentored by extremist sort of ideologues and things mm-hmm. like that. Quite often the technology is blamed for facilitating people meeting a need they would have even if that technology didn't exist, it's more oh, that it's absolutely. made these things possible and, and within our reach. Yeah, so I mean, this I is can see a huge heart, parallel. Yeah, this is the heart of media studies research about you know powerful effects and this perception that has gone back to the earliest days of radio that somehow this technology can corrupt people. Think about now debates you have or you hear from radical feminists who talk about pornography as a corrupting mm. influence and you know leading men to rape. Well, that might be viable if rapes suddenly started with the rise of internet pornography, but we've had rape throughout history. So yeah. this idea year of, you know, and I often talk about this, I teach a a sexual politics course Mm. at the university and I often talk about the famous Ted Bundy quote when he was, just before he was executed, he said, pornography made me do it. And so many people have clutched onto that as though, ah, that he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for the pornography. Why are we listening to the words of a I was just going to say that. (laughs) It's so surprising that of all the time we're ready to dismiss him as a clearly severely ill person suddenly but when he says that it's clarity and it's I I I often think about that quote because I think it encapsulates people want to blame something for bad for bad humans and Mm. or, or even bad relationships and if we sort of loop back to our conversation this is a theme in in film and tv presentations where you'll have one character introduce another oh that's Celia's boyfriend from the internet you know, and that kind of is a bit of a character indictment because, again, if you're from the internet as though the internet is a geographic place, <laughs> you're somehow less trustworthy and you kind of mm. – the media love to talk about this, and I often get interviewed about this in terms of, you know, is it more likely that you're going to meet someone who's duplicitous online? And, you know, yeah. catfishing is obviously one of those big points of discussion in recent years. Again, it wasn't though, it wasn't as 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 though people didn't lie to you in a bar if you met yeah. them there. It wasn't like pubs were doing ID checks in terms of getting a background check of people for a criminal record. It's just that the volume of people were encountering 
online is so much higher that mm. your instances of meeting someone dodgy is higher simply because you're going through more interactions. Yeah, and your chances of meeting the volume of people proportionately, you're, you're bound to meet people that operate in bad faith or operate really cruelly. Like when I was preparing for this interview, I was just, you know, skimming over some, you know, recent literature and articles. And like, I, I had to like open up a new tab every night, every time I came across a new term of how people have been duped online or yep. like, like really cruel practices. Like my, my knowledge was when as far as like catfishing, which, you know, I still struggle to remember why it's called catfishing. I have to look that up every year. But, you know, there are all these new terms like pigging was one I came across the other day. And I was like, what? What on earth is that? You know, and it's just like, man, the capacity for cruelty, for me anyway, stands out so much. But is it just because, is it because of that dehumanizing sort of element that I think technology can bring sometimes? But, you know, I reflect back on what you said around people have been cruel to each other since the dawn of time. You know, this yeah. isn't necessarily a new thing. And this is how I often think about the internet in terms of the internet doesn't do anything entirely new as related mm. to people. What it does do is take all those desires that people have, be it wanting to keep in touch with people, wanting to meet people for sex, wanting to do research, wanting to watch movies, whatever it might be that humans mm. have wanted to do. It provides us a means to do it faster, cheaper, and more easily than we could offline. And right. I think that I can't see the technology being responsible itself for stirring in us new desires. Now, you could say, well, hang on, I never knew about XYZ fetish before I went online and then it turned me on. Sure, but people have been exposed to things that accidentally arouse them or surprisingly arouse them since the dawn uh, of time. Yeah. It's not as though, you know, it's suddenly because if it was that clear cut, if it was just that the internet showed you something and it turned you on or it showed you something and it made you do it, why is it only certain things <laughs> as opposed to the 95,000 images and content that we're exposed to online? Why do we only say, oh, it's the internet pornography that is the responsible for our bad behaviour as opposed mm. to all the feel-good stories? Why aren't we doing more acts of charity or all these other things that we're also exposed to? It's a very odd, but, I mean, humans have always done it. Why? Why is it, for example, that we perceive violent videos or violent movies mm. to disproportionately impact behaviour as opposed to, okay, well, why aren't we influenced by Christmas films disproportionately? You know, why is it that we have, you know, that that skew to it? But think about it, though, in terms of time. Yeah. The amount of time people spend watching pornography, let's say, is going to be so much less than the news. Why isn't the news making us do? Anyway, that's just that idea of a sort of uh, a skew in terms of balance. As related to the why of the internet, while I don't think the internet is doing anything that we weren't doing offline, it's making it easier to do it and to scale it up right? So we feel mm, someone okay. who wants to prey upon people. It's much harder to do that in real life because you're going to have to show your face. So one of the big perks of the internet is the ability to be anonymous. Think about how many different things, be it scamming, even internet dating in early, you know, early stages, recruitment for terrorism, you name it, that uh, cyberbullying, trolling, being able to hide your identity is such a boon, but it also means you can recreate a new identity every single time you want to do something nefarious, which means it's also much easier to avoid any kind of legal consequence. But also this is one of those things, and catfishing is a perfect illustration of this, there is no law in Australia specifically addressing catfishing. So you've also got this idea of the law often being a number of literal years behind how the technology is being used. Yeah. I guess on that, just using that as a springboard then, Lauren, I mean, because we've talked about the role of technology in just people as, an, as a means for people to meet some sort of personal ends or whether that's personal social connections, intimacy, whatever it is. How do dating apps specifically, do you think, aff affect our ability to date or to perceive romance generally? So, look, I think that it brings in, and this is sort of one of the, if you want to see it as a somewhat, I feel I'm going to make it sound negative, and it isn't a negative idea if you're contrasting it purely with that serendipitous notion of two people meeting across a crowded room in real life. Mm. If we contrast it with that, it looks negative, but nonetheless. Yep. 
I think we've got some commercial aspects to it in the sense that first thing, it puts people in a position of having to out themselves as looking for love. Now, mm. on one hand, that is really advantageous in a culture that has become, rightly, more sensitive around issues of sexual harassment and unwanted advances, right? If you're putting yourself out there as looking, you're already dealing with other people who are in that same space for the same reasons. It doesn't mean there won't be harassment or, you know, but it means that at least you you know what you're there for. Right. Yes. It's not like LinkedIn where you're there for a professional <laughs> pursuit. We're here for love or sex. Yep. So you're already outing yourself. But that idea of putting yourself out there and now because of um, lockdowns, sure, but also the reality of how people meet now, it's the, you know, this perception of the only game in town. It kind of is that. So if you're going to go into this platform and put yourself out there, there's now you start to have to stir in aspects of the market such as self branding. How are you positioning yourself in this crowded marketplace? How do you get chosen amongst this sea of other faces? What do I need to do to put my best foot forward? Now, you could argue, weren't we always doing that offline? And this is certainly one of those arguments when people say, oh, has online dating made us more shallow? Well, you know, if you're endlessly swiping through faces and making judgment, sure. But we've done that mm. since time immemorial as exactly. well. We've yep. always judged people on how they look. It's not, it's a game an issue of volume. I think there are other aspects of the market that get stirred into this conversation. For example, because you are dealing with volume in online dating in a way that you never could offline, you're able to be more cavalier about this. You know, you're able to, for example, be more choosy. You're able to exit. And this is where you sort of see these uh, concepts like ghosting, etc. You're able to leave unpleasant or even just lackluster exchanges without any of the politeness expected if yes. you met at work, say, or at school, because your paths aren't going to cross with this person again. So I think there's a whole lot of things that um, the other aspect, you know, in terms of, let's say I said cavalier, but being disposable and, you know, exiting an unpleasant or, or, or unsatisfactory relationship. But it also means upgrading this perception well, I can always go back on the technology and do better than my current partner and that idea of being left and someone returning to the platform looking for better I think that's encouraged by the technology because you know that mm. there's this endless supply out there yeah, it's literally like one of the most recession-proof business models I can think of in well, some ways. And this is something I wrote about because arguably if these dating platforms actually helped you find the one, right, their business opportunities are relatively limited because if you found the one through their magical al algorithms, you'd be, you know, coupled off and two by two onto the arc and everyone would be happy. That's not how it works though. The mm. business model is they want you to keep using those apps or that platform and particularly ones that have a membership model, they want you to stay as a paying customer. That's, yeah. Again, I just can't help but see some of the parallels in just the spaces I've worked in, in terms of, um, and for me, it kind of raises this deeper question of like, should technology, how do I phrase this? Because we talk about algorithmic recommendations a lot really? in, you know, when we're talking, whether it's terrorism or romance, about feeding us content that we are apparently always looking for anyway. Yes. Like, where's the balance, you know, in terms of mm. like, is it good to fulfill every single urge that you have? Like, you know, you and but where do you find that balance between people's freedom to to choose these things and to decide for themselves versus making it an endless supply that we become kind of addicted to in some way. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. And when you said that, the first thing that came to mind was that adage, you know, if you ask someone, you know, if they're happy, they cease to be so. That kind of argument that as soon as you ask people, is your relationship good? You not only put plant the seeds of doubt, but you also encourage the idea of, well, there are many more fish in the sea and you don't need to work on your current relationship. You can actually just find someone better, more easy, etc. And I think that aspect has really been one of those influences on dating life in the sense that if you look at people pre-social media, now there's lots of reasons why divorce was less likely, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But mm. the fact that that's now, you know, more common is because, you know, advances that women have made in terms of being able to leave unsatisfactory relationships because they're economically yeah. stable, but also because it's okay to want more. 
But that wanting more it has the technology and the, the volume of possibilities out there meant that rather than working on this union, you know, instead we just say, oh, look, let's throw it in, the, you know, throw in the towel and go and look for something else. Has it made? And look, I don't actually think there's a right or wrong answer there because yeah. on one hand, it's the idea where well, you shouldn't be flogging a dead horse. If the relationship is gone, it's yeah, gone. Absolutely. On the other hand, though, is there an element there of the grass is always greener, which is very much in line with consumer. You know, one of my areas of research interest is advertising. Advertising works by saying to you, you know, your life is insufficient without this product. But as soon as you buy the product, you're then realizing it didn't actually solve everything. And then I see the next stat and it's a kind of hamster wheel, you know, buy, feel dissatisfaction, buy it again, feel dissatisfied. And that idea, if you apply it to, you know, anything, but online dating particularly, there is this element where culturally we're taught when you find your partner, the one, your life is going to be perfect. And in reality, it is not possible for that to be the case because, you know, we could talk about the psychology, but the reality is one person is never enough to fulfill all your needs as a human. That's why we have other people in our life. But the shopping list mentality that people often go into online dating with, and some Mm. of these platforms actually encourage it, you know, loves dogs, barracks yep. for whatever football team, et cetera, et cetera. You go into this system already identifying what it is you want in a partner with that idea that once I meet them, all the puzzle pieces will fit when in fact, obviously life is a lot more than just the person you're with. Right. Wow. Lauren, just given the fact that you, you've you been quite prolific in this space, even before the pandemic, is there any other color you can bring to the situation like midst or post pandemic, depending on where you are, like what, if anything, since you started working or researching this space, what has changed over the last two years? Like, you know, we're hearing about dating apps being the busiest they've ever been during uh, lockdowns and also being sources of like public health communications as a way to get people to stem, you know, transmission of a virus or whatever it is. Have there been any surprising changes or developments or just anything notable that you can share? Look, a couple of things. One of the things that struck me, and I made this comment in, a, in an interview early into the pandemic, was there's probably never been a time in human history that was as well equipped for a lockdown and for a pandemic as now. I don't mean that in a cynical way, but the idea that we're so versed in this technology that we were able to adapt so much of our lives to be done, be it socialising or working online, means we were quite equipped to cope. Could you imagine what this would have been like without the internet? Yeah. The idea, I'm in Melbourne. I literally can't. No, I'm in Melbourne and this is what my 27,000th year in lockdown. <laughs> there is, but I, I can't, I can't, I live on my own. How on earth would I have gotten through this period yeah. if I didn't? Ha- yeah, okay, we could say, well, you could be on the phone. Pfft, I'm an elder millennial. I can't be talking on the phone. <laughs> so there's that aspect to it, I think, as well, that um, the technology has has helped us get through this period but I think so therefore first dates for example happening on Zoom or Skype I think is one of the you could argue actually benefits of this in the sense I think that leave will even stay even once life goes back to normal because I think Mm. you could argue well you know let's just meet a person first in a five minute Zoom if there's a spark great but I don't want to waste putting shoes on for this or paying Mm. for a a beer or whatever if it's just going to if the spark isn't there and we know that that's the case with people where you often have an instant attraction or at least an instant eh, not not going anywhere with that. Yep. And that's yep. perhaps a good sort of screening exercise. And I think another aspect of this that I think maybe not surprised me because I wrote about this in my book was the concept of dating online as recreation in the sense of meeting and matching with people and exchanging messages and phone calls potentially and never actually doing anything more than that. And I think for a lot of people, particularly those in lockdown, this has been a bit of a, you know, a way to do socialising, a way to feel connected with the outside world and meet new people with a kind of low investment. Now, how much time people spend doing that, I can imagine that, you know, if you have no other social commitments, which is the case if you've been in in a long lockdown, there's an element of feeling like I'm still doing stuff I'm still able to feel desirable, even if I'm, you know, wearing the same pair of pajamas I've worn for six months. 
Right. So it becomes a facilitator and a technology is a facilitator in a whole other way, you know. In, but also, in that the, but the actual act of swiping and, you know, exchanging messages becoming the hobby itself. Because mm. I think we often think about online dating as a kind of end game, be it end game in finding my mate or end game in finding someone to have sex with for an evening. But the, the idea of simply the dating itself being the, recre- the recreation, I think that I definitely think that was happening before the before COVID. And as I said, I wrote about it. But I think during COVID, when there has been such a paucity of other kinds of recreation that has taken an even bigger role in some people's lives. Ah, that's a very interesting point, actually. The sort of the scarcity of other sorts of things to do. I'm not going Natural- anywhere. Yeah, else. no one's going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, literally, that would take up so much more brain space. And, and also, your market is bigger because there's lots of more people on these platforms in exactly the same position as well. Man, well. I think this is a good time to sort of start looking towards the future, right? And I think what this means for like people using these apps potentially, I guess from your vantage point right now, what does the future of online dating look like? You know, will traditional versus online dating still, will that be a meaningful distinction? Do you think, what are your bold predictions? I guess, if you have any. Look, I think you're going to see sort of micro-level changes like, for example, the notion of doing more of your initial dating via video. I think that's going to hold a lot of appeal for people, particularly given that, you know, I mean, that said, even when I say that, the other flip side of that coin, though, is are people going to seek out more opportunities to leave their homes and be more social? So while I think that that kind of works as a really good screening device, people may have felt so cooped up that they'll literally date anybody just to get out of the house (laughs) but I think yeah look that idea of um, whether we're going to have that traditional pre-internet dating model Mm. and contrast that with online dating now look I think that's uh, slowly going to not only as it has been fading but go away entirely and that's going to be because we're not going to have a generation anymore alive Mm. who knew Mm. a time before this technology So I think there'll always be people who don't meet online because you're human and you get attracted to the person you're sitting in a classroom, if we ever go back to the classroom, but, you know, or in a workplace setting, et cetera, you're still going to feel attraction towards other people. So, you know, a a more organic meeting is going to happen. But that idea of online dating and putting yourself out there being a default, I think that that's just going to be increasingly more normal. Now, Mm. Then we sort of stir in things like uh, certainly uh, there is a bit of a perception that people feel a little bit jaded by this technology, that, for example, it's a lot of work for low payoff, that you can spend lots and lots and lots of hours and get nothing and, you know, that it almost becomes its own part-time job. And while I think that that might be uh, individual perceptions of why they might leave the technology, be it for a little bit or for a long while. I don't think that that's going to be the perception for everybody because it's right. just the fact that it's just so easy. It's like saying, you know, Netflix, will we go back to Netflix posting us CDs or DVDs because we get sick of that. You know, there's, mm. there's very, I can't think of any example where we've had technology that has improved our life in terms of cheapness and ease and then gone back to how things work. I mean, it just doesn't work Ooh. that way. What I about, oh, I, can I just throw in an example oh, absolutely. here? What about books? In that books have become this, not that, they've, not that there's been like a complete reversal of like Kindle technology, but like I feel like books now, like to have a paperback book, like I just feel like people put way more effort into like physical books and it's like to own a physical book is actually, you get something maybe different than you would from getting something on Kindle. I don't know. Like that's the yeah. only example I could think but of. But my that counter maybe. to that would be though the rise of platforms such as Audible, right? Ah, so sure. I mm. think that you're like with online dating, you'll always have two tracks in society. You know, it won't be everyone will be on board, but I, it's not as though, for example, e-books have gone away. For no, example, no, in, gosh, no. in nonfiction and academic books, because academic books are so expensive, it's such a norm for and in libraries for example you know I often think of the University of Melbourne library where I'm based where mm. uh, the, the library is so full of books it's slowly literally sinking right oh, into gosh. the ground now you're looking <laughs> at a number of universities overseas that are moving away from physical libraries yeah, you know, sure. to, to ebooks so I think 
not not to say your point was wrong, but more so it's often two things happening at the same time. Yeah, so for example, yeah. we're going to have online dating, but you'll also see, for example, I think a resurgence of things like speed dating and other kinds of, you know, mixes and things that have come in and out of fashion that I think will cater to an audience who they might be the people who do both as well, mm, you know, mm, mm, online mm. dating as well as someone who goes to speed dating or as well as someone who goes to a, you know, mixer or whatever it might have been or, you know, a desperate and dateless ball. <laughs> you yeah, know, and yeah, I think yeah. that you often see this, as I said, I, I, I do a lot of research on the media. And when you look at trends in popular culture, you know, let's say think about a time where films were quite risque and it's like, well, wasn't they, were they not the only films being made at that same time? You know, there's often some thread of popular culture that's going down the dark and gritty path and others mm. that are still making the same kind of films that we've been watching for a hundred years. Yeah, indeed. Wow. That's really, yeah, no, totally hear you there as well. And it's like, it doesn't necessarily have to be either or it's just like, actually you might see a, a multi-track kind of system develop and maybe our social stories evolve or like the stories we tell as a society, I should say, evolve along with these different ways of meeting those needs, I guess. It's, yeah. it's just more of a, a multiplicity than like a, and yeah. A, but also think about it as well you know in terms of let's say applying for a job you know you might look at seek.com you also might direct call somebody and you also might do mm. this and that idea of a number of you know what is it pots on the fire I think will be applied to our dating life as well because it's not because we don't have those same rituals around courtship that we once did historically, I think people have a lot more liberty to be able to you know go down a number of paths simultaneously getting to that destination whatever that might be for you great well i've got maybe three hopefully briefish questions that's all right in mind right so i guess the first question just to sort of we talked about the generational shift right yeah. and how that seems to be a, a quite a big factor in attitudes towards technology using technology to date and to meet people on the background of like technophobia as a phenomenon like throughout history with, with every sort of technological development from like the printing press to the internet. Yep. Is your prediction that with this generational kind of shift and just, you know, with the, with the march of time that the attitude towards online dating will shift along with it? Or do you think there is something maybe deeply human is the only way I can put it that will still feel some sort of resistance or apprehension towards this sort of technology? I'm not sure it'll be apprehension because I think that, you know, uh, that the horse is bolted in the sense that the smartphone thing is going to, you know, just think about, um, you know, uh, and right now it's something on my mind in terms of proving vaccination status. The assumption is that everyone has a smartphone. So that idea culturally of assuming everyone's on board with that, we're not even pausing to think who are the people who aren't going to have a smartphone. And I'll tell you who this people without a smartphone, my grandmother who's 93. But yeah. that is a very fast <laughs> declining population in terms so this assumption that everyone's going to be using this technology I think mm. once we are doing ever more of our social interactions online I think you start to take away the we'll use the word stigma because we don't have a better one sure. around yeah. these things so I just think for example I've never in my life paid a bill in person right? I've always done my bill paying online. And I look at my dad who until, and my dad's, I think 65, he's only recently stopped going to the post office to pay his bills. Yeah, And he said to me, but I like talking to the people in the post mm. office. Well, COVID kind of forced him to actually find, oh my God, there's BPAY. But yeah. that idea of people assuming that, you know, or preferencing a real life interaction, I think that's going to decline. And you can see that in so many areas from the rise of online shopping to paying bills online to all those things that we're now using the technology for. So I think the idea of meeting people that way has lost its stigma, not just because, well, and will increasingly lose its stigma because we're doing so many other social interactions online as well. And not even just those sort of interpersonal, oh, sorry, the ones that lack a person, you know, for example, paying a bill where you're not dealing with a person online, but exchanges you might have on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you're constantly interacting with people you don't know online. So there's an element there of normalizing relationships that, aren't, that don't take the human flesh form that they do mm. offline. I think the other aspect, though, to that, though, or at least the limitation is we cannot ignore the Western literature or pop culture canon, right? We are baptised in a 
a sea of films and, and books and cartoons and you name it of things that have presented us an idealized form of love, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there is no Disney cartoon of two people who find love online right? Mm. So that idea of that very long history of romanticized media, I think will always mean, because that doesn't go away just because we get distance from it. You know, people still name Wizard of Oz as a favorite film and it was made in 1939. So that idea of the influence of these films and books, that doesn't go away with the passing of time. So I think you'll see that sort of two-track thing. Yes, it, it'll become increasingly normal, increasingly without the, the kind of stigma that we had in the 90s in early 2000s, but I still think it will continue to be contrasted with that idea of a more romanticised real-life meeting, you know, the meet-cute where, you know, we kind of bump in, crash into each other at the laundromat and at find the laundromat, love, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or, or a lift that gets stuck or whatever it might be. There's yeah. still an element there of that being more real because somehow divine intervention occurred. Mm. And I guess, you know, I, like, cause I've got one quote from one of your great thought pieces that I read before, which was just, and it really stuck out to me where you say, I don't have a monkey see monkey do view. Nonetheless, film and TV certainly have a role in helping shape our thinking about social behaviors. And that seems to be the, the kind of the undercurrent of what we're talking about here. It's like, while it's not like a prescriptive A to B type of influence on people's attitudes towards it, there are like we're so saturated by stories about this topic as it is, it's hard not to internalise some of that into our own expectations in some way. Is that correct? Yeah, and, yeah, I think when you were saying that, I was also thinking of just how increasingly, you know, that idea of sort of online, offline persona perception, right, that's gone now because yeah. we're always online. And I think that there's just, a again, this concept of, of, of volume as well. But, yes, our cultural ideas of norms. I mean, I'll get interviewed by a journalist who, let's say I'm 41, so let's say, you know, 25 years old, a digital native in the sense that they grew up with the technology, whereas mm. I got it at 16 or yep. 15. They'll still ask about, you know, life before, you know, uh, uh, they'll still do that contrast in that question, you know, as though there's still this idea of there being something a little bit foreign and topical about this you know and you see this and I watch a lot of true crime and and news and you'll have even in news reporting they'll often say you know what their search history was yes. <laughs> as though this is somehow revealing and this dates back and this is where this sort of topic first became or, or, or got put on my agenda was I remember being at home and the Columbine massacre had happened and I was I think 19 at the time and I was watching all of the coverage and in that coverage there was constant reference to the two perpetrators enjoying online gaming right no yeah. one mentioned that they liked eating lasagna or patting dogs or you know watching perfect match they just kept repeating this online gaming thing and yeah. that has not gone away even though we're decades removed from that time there's still this idea that there's something a little and and all, um, the reason I'm mentioning that is that constant repetition, when you do that, when you repeat that kind of narrative, when you plant the seed of um, that there's something that you should at least think about their online dating history or their online gaming history, mm. you're planting the idea that there's something at least that, that or you're planting the idea culturally that there is at least reason to be suspicious about that. And that then doesn't go away because, you know, the next generation of journalists have looked at what's gone before and there's a normalizing factor there and look this isn't entirely columbine specific i mean the coverage of port alpha the perpetrator was again mentioned he really liked violent videos yes and that again you know that constant repetition of there being some malevolent media involved in bad behavior that that won't go away because society loves outsourcing responsibility for human action. And therefore, I think that will always be a little bit of people's apprehension or at least lack of complete, fully wholehearted embrace of online dating because of that idea that there's some third hand in this, if you like, you know, this yes. idea of media or in this case, technology. Mm, I love that. Because again, I just see the resonance in the work that I am normally yeah. doing, you know, where it's just like, you know, um, it's not like a Charles Manson helter skelter kind of situation where you listen to a song and you think the Beatles are telling you to incite a race war, you know, like 
we forget about the tons of drugs that guy was probably doing across with all the trauma he would have had and all you know all the multitude of circumstances that made charles manson the beast that he was as but, opposed um, to acting as though one thing is a trigger yeah in this that's right. light switch fashion yes exactly and you know on the topic of gaming as well we've got a guest in, in one of our other episodes where we're specifically talking about the impact of gaming and radicalization mm-hmm. as well because again that's a that's a topic and a conversation that's evolved but again this idea of like the influences that we imbibe just by existing amongst it and the things we intentionally take on seems to be this recurring tension, you know, or just this these two factors that are happening simultaneously. So that's well, really cool. I, and I think partic- I have a student writing a PhD on online radicalization. So it's it's a topic I've also been thinking about. And I think that's one of those interesting things where people talk, you know, this concept of sort of top down versus bottom up recruitment, you know, as though, oh, it was some sort of, let's say, rogue mom who convinced someone over to the dark side, as opposed to they actively might have been looking up these YouTube videos exactly. in a self-radicalization way. And that's really hard to understand culturally because we always like to blame it on some external force as opposed to some people actually seek out this stuff and you know yes we could look at all the different social factors that put them in that position of you know googling at two o'clock in the morning on their own but Mm. nonetheless these aren't as clear cut as we like to make absolutely on that note lauren i guess just one last parting question because you know this is this has been so endlessly fascinating and i love drawing the parallels between so many other conversations we have and and boiling it down to those essences of like well we're just trying to meet our personal psychosocial needs a lot that of the time universal as well yeah as exactly you know, everyone wants you or i shouldn't say everyone nearly everybody wants love and sex and social interaction i guess what would you say if if dating app companies in particular could do one thing to lower people's feelings of technophobia towards online dating, what what would you think they could do? And what can we as consumers of these things do in the absence of any sort of external intervention as well? The second part of that question is much easier to answer. The second sure. part is saying that this is something obviously as an academic I'm a bit biased in favour of, but that we all need to be media literate and we also need to understand that that's a lifelong commitment. Right? It's mm. not just something that can be handled in year seven class of, you know, how to spot fake news. But in fact, all of us, no matter how educated you are, are susceptible to this. And therefore, we constantly need to be, you know, both querying our, our, our sources, but yes. also just not falling into that trip, that trap of re-forwarding, you know, content that looks sketchy. So even doing due diligence to, you know, at least Googling, does this actually look right? And that's something that, again, we shouldn't, and people do this research says people do this all the time, overestimating their ability to detect a rubbish story when in fact all of us are not that good at it. The other part in terms of how to make these platforms safer or at least how to make these platforms less stigmatised is actually the same answer I've got to how do you clean up social media more broadly. But as soon as the words and as soon as the answer leave my mouth, Mm -hmm. I'm going to identify why I don't feel totally comfortable with it, but I feel it's sure, the only yeah, please. I yep. think people have to subscribe to these sites with their true identity, right? Mm, Be okay. it supplying yeah. identity documentation, etc. Because once people do that, once I have to actually prove who I am, that barrier of that that benefit of anonymity where I control and abuse and catfish and whatever it is goes away or at least substantially reduces because mm. your ability to get caught is super easy. But, and I feel so many problems are corrected culturally if we have to own our identity when we're interacting online. But so one of the chapters of my uh, book on online intimacy, I have a chapter about how the internet is often people's first foray into different kinds of sexualities. Now that could be non-heterosexuality, but it also could be certain sexual fetishes or or, or predilections, right? Yep. Mm. So I don't feel it's okay to tell a 15 or 17 or 19-year-old, even 25-year-old who's just coming to terms with their gay identity or trans identity that you need to out yourself Mm. now Mm. because you're forcing the hand of that kid and I, I... substitute any kind of identity marker that you might feel um, yeah is vul- uh, vulnerable or yeah, yeah, at risk exactly. yeah yeah yep. you're in witness protection you're trying to avoid an x whatever it might be 
I don't want their hand to, to be forced as they're coming to terms with this stuff and nor should they be prevented going online and yes. interacting and meeting people just because of this um, mandate. Now you could say, well, there could be a hybrid model where you still have to sign up with all that, that information, but you could still have a screen name. And perhaps that's one of the possibilities, you know, in a kind of middle ground thing here. And yeah. but I, it's just one of those. And I, I don't for a moment think I don't, imagine that the social media companies and dating companies have had sure. a word about this and they also don't want to have to be doing the id you know a bitch what is a door the verification kind of yeah. Yeah, they don't want to be doing <laughs> they don't want to be doing that yeah yeah but that idea of limiting people's ability to be nefarious online through outing their identity i think has a lot of benefits but i mm. do see the costs Oh man, what a cracking hot take to end on. I'm so like, that's so, such a provocative, but like worthwhile position to put out there. And it kind of sounds like, look, yeah, there's no perfect way to do it. It would need some exploration and investigating with the right people and some like trial and, and, all, error, and, and there's also this cultural lack of trust for example yes. think about yep. the facebook stuff where if they've got my passport or if they've got my social security number or whatever it might be as part of my id check do i trust these private companies to hold that much personal information on me as part yes. of my verification so there are so many different aspects of this that, are, that need to be thought through but often as is always the case with law and policy relating to technology the horse kind of bolts and then we kind of scrabble yes. to try and work and we'll out how to, yeah and in the meantime though there are often victims and i think that's the kind of position we find ourselves in now that's quite that's that's very true well lauren thank you so much for such a fun illuminating discussion and you've had so much rich insight and certainly given me some new frames to look at some of these collective and individual challenges um through which is awesome just for our listeners, where can they find you? www.mynamelaurenrosewarn.com. That's also my Twitter handle as well, Lauren Rosewarn. Well, we'll Thank definitely so put, we'll put that in the show notes. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope it's been as fun for you as it has for us. And yeah, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.